This is Street Signals, a weekly conversation about markets and macro brought to you by State Street Global Markets. I'm your host, Tim Graff, Head of Macro Strategy for EMEA at State Street, based in London. After a pretty quiet summer, market participants are getting back to their desks. I'm certainly back at mine now, and the podcast is back after a one-week hiatus. This week, we are going to talk all about global growth and its outlook for the remainder of this year into next year. Now, there are a couple of opposing forces at the moment that are driving thinking on global growth. You have, of course, China on the one hand, where it seems most days we get a piece of negative news about the outlook for Chinese demand, be it the over-indebtedness of the property sector or the weakness of the consumer. But on the other hand, you have evidence emerging from the U.S. and other economies of a higher likelihood of that ever-elusive soft landing. This week, Dan Girard from the Macro Strategy team joins me to discuss these trends and also to provide some interesting thinking on whether or not this idea of a soft landing is actually a desirable outcome for markets. So Dan, welcome back to Street Signals. Were you one of those lucky people who got to get away over the last week or two? Uh, I was indeed. Great to be back with you, Tim. I um. I was actually with my son in Texas. We had such a rainy summer here in the northeast of the U.S. It was it was a nice little heat break before the the fall starts here in the northeast. Very good. Well, yeah, you'll you'll probably get the usual Boston weather before too long, I can imagine. But exactly. in the meantime, some heat, I'm sure, was welcome. Listen, Dan, let's talk about this notion of the risks to global growth and. You know, when we were exchanging emails back and forth before this on some ideas, talk about what you think is the biggest risk factor for global growth right now. Is it the fact that the Fed is over tightening or are they just kind of doing the job they need to be doing and the U.S. growth picture is absolutely fine? Or is it China that is really going to break things when it comes to global growth? What's your take here? So, Tim, I think it's a really important question here because my take is, is that we're looking at, at that question the wrong way. I think that, in fact, it's been... China's weakness that has been coincident with Fed policy in allowing some disinflationary um, effects to come through into the U.S., and that actually the Fed has had much less impact on the overall growth story, let's say, than they would have expected or that anyone expected, um, and that because we're so tied up in this uncertainty, there's just a very coincident thought process that's happening in, in the US investment world right now. Yes, the US growth story is at risk, but it's not necessarily because the Fed is going to over-tighten. Over-tighten assumes a policy mistake. Mm-hmm. I think that the, the, the problem is they need to create a growth problem still, and they haven't yet, because if they don't, that potential energy of a anticipation of easier policy will spike inflation again. And in fact, we're already starting to see signs of that with better spending. The China side um, has allowed us to import some of that deflation that they're experiencing. At the same time, we're getting better supply chains and uh, better flow of goods. We still are at this this policy chess game, right? It's It's not so much about fundamentals. It's trying to guess three moves ahead about what is going to happen with policy and how that will impact um, growth going forward. So yes, China growth is a, is, a, is a risk to global growth, but is it the kind of risk we really need to worry about for global growth? It's a, it's a risk for domestic policy, for sure, for 
in internal strife, perhaps. But I think it's much less so how it's going to impact overall this global recessionary feel that we care about. Would the Fed take that? as, well, hey, this is just working in our favor even further, and this is going to give us less to do. We've seen already from last week, the labor market is, look, the labor market's not weakening. It's a pretty robust labor market, but it's heading in the direction potentially the Fed wants to see. Inflation is doing something similar. And will the Fed take this as perhaps an, a reason now to sit on hold for a prolonged period of time? Even if it's nothing to do with the U.S. economy, it plays into perhaps what they want to see. Do you see it that way? They've had that advantage so far. I think that that's been what's happening over the course of this summer. And I believe that they're going to have a very hard decision to make as we enter the next couple of months, because the coincident data, even if they know it's coincident, has allowed them to be a bit more dovish. The coincident data is turning around with way too much liquidity in a QT program that is way too slow. So if that's the case, and now we're getting higher energy prices, a reset of health services prices in the US, potentially even higher food prices. When we look at acyclical core part of the PCE, so the PCE that's spo not supposed to be impacted by the rates, that has been coming down, that's been driving the disinflation. Even that's turning around right now mm. uh, to, to a bit higher. So I think that they know that, that this data has been coincident and they've kind of ignored it in a way but they're not going to have that luxury. And that's going to be the issue going forward. They're going to have this tough decision that growth might be looking a bit slower, but the price pressures are not. And the, the tough decision is going to come from actually improving credit conditions on the idea that it, markets are anticipating a Fed on hold. But this is what's curious to me is a couple of hours ago, Chris Waller, who's seen as the hawk or one of the hawks, most prominent, I think, in speaking to the media about this message of keeping inflation contained. He's sounding very relaxed about it now, looking at risks as quite balanced. So not really thinking about this reacceleration risk that you've, you've talked about. In a couple of weeks' time, we have the meeting where they update their projections, and it's pretty certain they're going to have to upgrade their growth forecast for the remainder of this year. It's pretty likely they're going to have to lower their unemployment forecast. So is this a case of, look, we, we know this is an issue, we just can't talk about it right now because everything's kind of working our way, and, and we'll worry about that in the future? Or do they really see this as not a risk? Well, that's a tough one. I mean, I... I have to imagine that they see the data, but this is the policy mistake, I think, is giving the greater economy the idea that, that we're through it because we know how much liquidity is still out there. And we saw even in August, better retail sales, um, still some pretty good purchasing power, perhaps on the idea that prices are, are not rising as fast. And that also led to better credit. I mean, the, the turnaround in credit conditions is, is really what we should watch. You're absolutely right. The, the September SEP, uh, the Summary of Economic Projections, is likely going to have to revise towards strength all around on unemployment, on perhaps even in inflation and growth. Doing that at a time when they're trying to give the market some sense of calm, I think is a, a tight line to walk. Policy rates are not magic fairy dust. It's not mm. like we can look back and just say, tighter rates could equal less demand. There has to be a transmission mechanism. And that so far has been not going the way uh, 
that I, I think they they planned it, even if it's coincidentally improving. <laughs> and, it, and it's interesting because six months ago, we were thinking about policy transmission actually working exactly as it should be working insofar as they, they didn't intend to have SVB and the various regional banks go completely belly up, but it gave you a sense that, okay, this is kind of what happens. This is normal. This is a cycle of aggressive rate hikes and QT that is probably having, if not a desired effect, at least perhaps unexpected effect. Where are we with that, With particularly with respect to, to how regional banks are faring or how big money center banks are faring for that matter? Well, you, you hit on one part of it that I think the Fed is underplayed, and that's the QT part, right? We, they are aware of the rates part. They've continued in all of their statements to underplay the impact of quantitative tightening. And I think that's a mistake as well that we're, we're going to see. When, when we did start to see too much money leaving the system, that's when we got the issues, the, the, mm. the, the bank issues that popped up. They reversed that with with facilities to to increase liquidity again, which expanded their balance sheet again. And we're at this point now where we have to think about the the transmission we care about. And, and it, it's easy to get into the abstract. So I think it's much better to keep this in terms of what we care about, which is economic growth and the impact that the Fed has on the growth picture. And market prices, asset prices, and the impact they have on that. Those are two different things, both caused by either better liquidity or liquidity choices that are made from the banking system and the money market system. So your question is about the bank side of things. We have started to see recently the decline in deposits stop. Um, they've started to stabilize again. We've started to see bank lending pick up again, even if credit total credit is flat because they're not buying as much in the treasury space. But that money is going back into the grow, um, sorry, the asset picture from banks as they start to make loans. They're making loans in the mm -hmm. consumer side, in the business side, commercial real estate is starting to pick up again. And then the money markets, which act like banks, are starting to pull money out of the reverse repo facility and push it back into financial assets. So both of those sides are now fueling higher growth and higher assets in the face of what we think is tighter policy. If, if there's something that tells us that that the, the transmission is not working the way it should, that should be it. It's, it's going to be hard to control that surge if the Fed is even less hawkish or, or more dovish than they are now. To what degree... We haven't seen it yet. I, I remember before I went away, there was this bear steepening of the curve, and that was the big threat to markets, and it was going to derail things. And and but oh, to be fair, that is usually or often what happens before you get big dislocations in markets that the Fed then traditionally has responded to with easier policy. We haven't seen that really extend any further. And as I noted. A couple of episodes ago, we actually are seeing strong demand for treasuries. But I do wonder if fiscal policy is the unheralded threat here insofar as the U.S. is still running budget deficits of 8% of GDP. That doesn't speak to a debt sustainability issue. It does speak to this reacceleration. if that doesn't get chipped away at some point. Do you have any sympathy with that view that maybe it's not bond markets that force a correction, but it's that monetary policy has to accelerate to meet the impetus of fiscal policy more aggressively. Is that what you're getting at? I am getting at it. And I think that that's what Waller is hoping um, in, in a way that fiscal policy is 
uh, again, coincident with their policy that allows them to take an easier tone, but it's 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 not the right way to go about it because um, you're right there. It's it, it hasn't really been a sustained bear bear steepening. They were hoping, I think, that or getting lucky that higher rates because of a few other mechanisms, including foreign demand and bank demand, um, would finally do what the Fed was unable to do, which was bring up the long the long end a little bit. It's not really carrying through. Um, I'm sort of not in the camp that there's a, a a treasury strike. I think everything has its price, and in fact, they will attract buying it at some some price level, right? Um, mm. But but there is there are certainly international dynamics at play that. Um, will will stick with us in, in in a secular setting for a while, and that is um, not as much buying from Japan and not as much buying from China. And we know how long these kind of impacts can last. We we saw the opposite of that right throughout the the two thousand the, the first couple of decades, yeah. in fact, and and how the Fed was actually unable to control with policy a housing boom because of strong demand for Treasuries from abroad. That is now reversing itself and i think that that's going to stick with us for a while that so you know it's a, kind of a long-winded way to answer your question but i'm i'm sympathetic with the view that this is not the fed issue uh, per se that it is mechanics but the fed is going to have to not rely on that if they want to keep the pressure off of prices this is a good chance to talk about something other than the fed in that we do that a lot on this podcast and i've noticed it over the last <laughs> few episodes and i don't want to do that actually i don't want this to be fed watch podcast but the, the Bank of Japan and their tweaks to yield curve control, this has been talked about as impetus for the bear steepening, as one of the reasons behind it. And as you say, it did kind of fizzle out that move, but I think it is meaningful in that it's a huge investor community that typically puts fixed income capital abroad and the dynamics now have potentially changed. When you think about the things you've said, as far as the Fed has done a lot, Central banks globally have done a lot. And yet, actually, over the last six months, financial conditions, if anything, are flat to easier. Is what the Bank of Japan is now doing, is that a potentially more meaningful correction in financial conditions to come, in your view? It's certainly a meaningful one. Look, I, I, everyone's got an opinion on Japan assets these days. And, and it's funny because we oftentimes in financial markets, all of us try to avoid having an opinion on Japanese assets because they're so confounding. What's interesting here is that they've got the same kind of issues, dueling fiscal and monetary policy. And instead of concentrating on the fundamentals as much, we're concentrating on this policy chess, right? It's a mm -hmm. thinking two or three moves ahead about what are the impacts between these two institutions. So Japanese inflation uh, has been very well correlated with weakening currency due to their their basket of imports. We know that higher prices is now leading to lower consumer spending in uh, a um, a careful culture of borrowing and spending in in, in difficult demographics already. And the response to that is going to be more fiscal support to to support Japanese growth when inflation is the issue that's causing perhaps less demand. Um, this is, uh, you know, again, I think this is kind of a, a tough circle to get out of. All, overall, all of that, I think, means probably stronger yen because of a relaxing of yield curve control, as gradual as it might be, as well as uh, kind of a, a less of a demand for US treasuries, which will 
cause rates to, to rise in the long end here, at least less demand, less of a, in an already weaker demand world, less demand at the margin. And, and that will that will matter. That higher currency has a knock-on effect as well into the very drivers that are helping Japanese growth and Japanese uh, equities for sure. It's almost those if you're saying, and this has been the case in the US where you know you think classically about currency economics, expansionary fiscal policy, tight monetary policy equals stronger currency. It's like the, the classic model, right? And is that what you're saying Japan is now running? Are they taking the baton from the US in a way? In a way, I, I think they, they're the, the inventors of some of these these policy conundrums, right? I mean, the or at least the the ideas of of trying to get out of one policy move by introducing another. They they've you know they were the the inventors of quantitative easing, right? And now yeah. it, it's it's something that we forget is that was not a a pervasive a methodology ten years ago. You know, ten years ago or or maybe twelve or thirteen years ago, if you said the word quantitative easing, you'd have to go you'd get puzzled looks from every most people and have to go look in the the annals of Japanese finance to find out what that even meant. That that's actually uh, normalized now in a way, right? So the the reverse of that is being led by Japan, and and we're going to see you know the further impact of that as well on on the knock on effect to the rest of rest of the rates world for sure. Going back to some of the notes we were exchanging before, I wanted to shift a little bit on that note to emerging markets. And you wrote something that really intrigued me, and I want to get what you actually mean by it, <laughs> because I wasn't sure. sure. You you talked about developed markets taking their cues from emerging markets in this environment. Can you elaborate on that, what that means to you? Sure. And, and I think that the context of this is that there is there is very little historical analog to the current period we are in. Yet, it is our nature to try to go back and find periods that look like this one. Yet, coming out of a, a financial crisis, trying to borrow and lend our way out of, of, of a debt crisis, followed by uh, a lot of intervention from both fiscal and monetary policymakers over the, the, the subsequent decade, and then into a pandemic, um, there, there's just nothing like it where, we're, where we've uh, reset to, or, or whatever we want to call it, if it's not a reset, where, where we've ended up. In the previous cycles, it has always been that as developed market in US, or let's call it developed market rates rose, you got a lot of capital outflow from emerging markets. It was mm -hmm. just this risk off, seeking shelter, better yields and better opportunities with less risk in, in this part of the world. Emerging markets were very, very aware of that this time around. They knew in a way what was coming and got way ahead of the inflation issue, got their rates up pretty high to to keep capital and to to fight inflation which was acceptable because of those two things happening at the same time now they look like a, so so let's call it local currency emerging markets debt looks like perhaps one of the the, the safest areas because you have uh, inflation that is disinflating pretty pretty strongly uh, very different drivers in emerging markets you've got policy that is now able to ease a bit and support growth while still not uh, sparking any uh, any any capital outflow. What the developed markets are saying is they're saying, okay, well, our inflation is still high, but if we kind of keep the rate pressure on for long enough, we can start to cut to maintain growth and not spook the markets. That's it's this weird reversal of perception or or uh, or viewpoints that is where EM is saying or DM is saying 
Well, look at look at Latin America. They're they're able to do this. This should be the roadmap for us that we can get inflation under control, a plateau, and then start to support growth and um, come in for the soft landing. I, I think that is, a, is, again, wishful thinking because the drivers are so different of inflation. And in fact, even emerging markets now are going to have to start to deal with things they don't want to deal with, higher energy prices and higher yeah. food prices that we know central banking is very uh, a very poor remedy for that. Yet we're already seeing signs from um, from Korea, from Indonesia, from India, that they're thinking about how monetary policy can help them with that problem. Can monetary policy help them with that problem? It can slow growth for sure. Yeah. But does it really help with the underlying pain of uh, higher food and energy prices? Not really. This is a, a much bigger problem than uh, the demand on the on the consumer side or even on the business side. This is a, a supply issue too. And this is a recovery with many changes from the pandemic that are going to take years to work through. We have only certain tools in the policy world and you know, bankers, central bankers can't appear to just say, it's not acceptable to just say, well, just, you know, we'll, we'll let the market work it out. I, it, it all strikes me to bring it full circle, I think, as a very 2022 type of environment, the, the one you're painting for me, where there is this potential for reacceleration, which makes me want to shy away from bonds. But does that push you into equities or, or is this an environment like last year where it's, can you even say cash in that inflationary environment? I think you can say cash because I think that we don't have the, the reinvestment risk, you know, in, in that time frame. I think yields are high enough that, that it's interesting. So I think the short duration is okay. Equity market for now is okay too. And this is again, a tricky one because of What's our time frame, and, and yeah. you know how how wrong am I going to be for how long? Um, let's let's just bring it back to if we want to measure something, it should be the employment side, right? I think this is the key to everything. If we have to look at look at it through the inflationary lens, then employment is the key, and it's not really showing signs of turning around yet. I think jobs are growing at a normal pace, a pre-pandemic mm -hmm. pace, you know, but with much, much higher policy rates. And I think that that's the part we keep forgetting. So what does that say? It says the Fed needs stable prices and full employment, and they think about growth when data is in their favor. They don't think so much about growth when data is not in their favor, which back to your 2022 point, nominal growth is still really high. Let's just stick with the US for a second. And that explains the high earnings growth. But mm. earnings growth expectations are even higher. Valuations are expanding. And that makes sense. Liquidity in the system continues to be quite good. Money is coming out of reverse repo into money markets, raising portfolio values. All of that is not supportive of lower prices. And until the Fed, or in, let's not call it the Fed watch, as you said, but until we really do see changes in the labor market, real changes, not just slower normal growth, then all of that complicates this world of a sustainable soft landing because they'll have to do something. And I know that's, again, looking, looking ahead a couple steps. What that means for now is equities are okay, but with expectations too high and nominal growth that has to come down and liquidity that has to come out of the system, that hits both earnings and multiples at some point. When is that? It's not this week. It's not next <laughs> month. 
<laughs> so well, thank I goodness. Think I, I have to write the asset <laughs> allocation piece for this yeah. month. And I thought this was going to actually be a really simple exercise, but you've made my life very, very complicated. <laughs> I think it's I think it's a next year problem. I think it's once we start to see enough of a nominal slowdown because of tighter conditions, then companies will will take that cue and and really start to, to think about the the problems. But there's nothing out there right now that's really telling companies. Look, this is going to be a tough environment. And, and to the Waller point, all of that is actually reinforcing companies' beliefs that we will see a soft landing, which complicates the Fed's problem down the line. So it's a it's a two-step plan, which likely keeps equities and shorter duration the trade for a while. Dan, I, I've never would have thought a soft landing would create a problem, but I think <laughs> you, you've managed to to tell us how one will. So thank you very much. It's, it's always really insightful. It always gives me a lot to think about. And it's always good to have a chat. Thanks so much for having me on, Tim. Thanks for listening to this week's edition of Street Signals from the research team at State Street Global Markets. This podcast and all of our research can be found at our web portal, Insights. There, you'll be able to find all of our latest thinking on macroeconomics and markets, where we leverage our deep experience in research on investor behavior, inflation, risk, and media sentiment, all of which goes into building an award-winning strategy product. If you're a client of State Street, hit us up there at globalmarkets.statestreet.com. We'll see you next time. This communication is provided by State Street Bank and Trust Company, hereafter referred to as State Street, and is for informational purposes only, and is not intended to suggest or recommend any transaction, investment, or investment strategy. It does not constitute investment research, nor does it purport to be comprehensive or intended to replace the exercise of an investor's own careful, independent review and judgment regarding any investment decision. This communication and the information herein does not constitute investment, legal, or tax advice, and is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities or any financial instrument nor is it intended to constitute a binding contractual arrangement or commitment by State Street of any kind. The information provided does not take into account any particular investment objectives, strategies, investment horizon, or tax status. The views expressed herein are the views of State Street as of the date specified and are subject to change without notice based on market and other conditions. The information provided herein has been obtained from sources believed to be reliable at the time of publication. Nonetheless, we make no representations or assurances that the information is complete or accurate, and you should not place any reliance on said information. State Street hereby disclaims any warranty and all liability, whether arising in contract, tort, or otherwise, for any losses, liabilities, damages, expenses, or costs, either direct, indirect, consequential, special, or punitive, arising from or in connection with any use of this communication and or the information herein. State Street or its affiliates may from time to time as principal or agent for its own account or for those of its clients have positions in and or actively trade in financial instruments or other products identical to or economically related to those discussed in this communication. State Street may have a commercial relationship with issuers of financial instruments or other products discussed in this communication. This communication may contain information deemed to be forward-looking statements. These statements are based on assumptions, analyses, and expectations of State Street in light of its experience and perception of historical trends, current conditions, expected future developments, and other factors it believes appropriate under the circumstances. All information is subject to change without notice. This communication or any portion hereof may not be redistributed without the prior written consent of State Street. Past performance is no guarantee of future results.